In 2009, President Barack Obama visited Africa with First Lady Michelle Obama and their two daughters. One of the spots that he and his family visited was Cape Coast Castle in Ghana. It's the place where Spanish slave traders would stay and keep slaves in dungeons before they were shipped off to the New World, which was America. This was 400, 500 years ago when this would happen. The slaves would be placed in these horrific conditions in these dungeons. They would all be like packed in these small cells where there was no bathroom and there was no bed and women were repeatedly violated. And as President Barack Obama was walking through these halls, you know, he himself as a biracial black American, and he was being interviewed by CNN anchor Anderson Cooper. Uh, and he was, Anderson Cooper was asking him how he felt when he was walking through those buildings. And President Obama said two statements in passing that really stood out to me in this interview. Uh, the first thing was he noticed a house of worship where slave owners would attend with their children right above the dungeon. And then the other statement that stood out to me was that uh, as he was leaving the building, he said, through this door is where the journey of the African-American experience begins. The past two weeks in our nation have been some of the most tumultuous and tense times that most of us have ever witnessed. It was catalyzed uh, a little less than two weeks ago with the video footage of George Floyd being killed um, by a police officer. And that was horrific and that rightly sparked a lot of anger and frustration for many Americans and not just black Americans, for many people. But did it start there? No, no. Uh, the past couple months, there's been horrific news and other videos that have surfaced that have been equally as malicious and awful, like the video footage of Ahmaud Arbery when he was hunted down and killed uh, 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 when he was unarmed. And then there's the news of Breonna Taylor, who was like sleeping at her home when the police came in and shot her to death, right? But did it start with those two individuals? No, no. This, these protests and some of them that have turned into riots reminded me of when I was uh, 11 years old or 12 years old in 1992. Uh, with the LA riots when I was actually walking home from school during the LA riots, right? But did all of this begin with Rodney King? No, it didn't. It really began 400, 500 years ago when Africans were taken from their homes in Africa, right? And placed in these horrific dungeons and shipped off to the new world to become slaves of these like Spanish people, of these Europeans that they had never known. The black American experience begins 400, 500 years ago as slaves. One of the other things that this time has really reminded me of is that uh, this is a time of uh, 
awakening, and this is a time of recognition for the American church. For far too long, the Western church has ignored the cries of the oppressed, particularly of black Americans. And, and that's the reason why I wanted to look at the story of the Good Samaritan today, is because in today's passage, you can read uh, the victim in the story as the black American, but in order for us to really allow justice to transform our lives, we have to place ourselves in the position of the Samaritan, right? Because the Samaritan in today's story uh, that Jesus tells uh, the lawyer, right, the expert of the law, he is the model example of what a neighbor of justice should look like. The Samaritan in today's story is the model example of what a neighbor of justice looks like. Today we read from the gospel according to Luke, and Luke is uh, one of my favorite characters in the New Testament, okay? Um, he is uh, a physician by trade, okay? That's his career, okay? That's his vocation. But as a hobby, he also loves to study history, okay? He's a big history buff, he's a big history nerd. But probably the most important and unique thing about him is that he is a Gentile, okay? He is not a Jew. Every other author of the New Testament, as far as we know, is Jewish, but he himself is not, all right? And so he was writing this gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? This story of Jesus Christ from the perspective of a Jew or of a Gentile to a non-Jewish audience, all right? And so for me and probably for a lot of us who are listening in, uh, most of us are not Jewish, and so it's very, very relevant, okay? This little information is, is very, very important. And in today's encounter, okay, in today's passage, Jesus is going about doing his ministry, and he's been doing a lot of good things, a lot of good work and miracles and teachings for uh, at least a year now, okay? And he's like kind of deep into his ministry. He's performed a lot of miracles and there's been some people who were following along in his ministry. One of these people is an expert of the law or a Jewish lawyer, all right? And in the first century, under the Roman Empire, right? The Roman Empire was the most powerful empire at the time in the world, right? Uh, the Roman Empire allowed the Jewish community to have their own courts and have their own legal system, right? Which meant that they even had their own lawyers and judges, okay? And so one of these lawyers, who's an expert of the Jewish law, right? He approaches Jesus and he asks him a very, very important question. He asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? In other words, what must I pay in order to receive eternal life? What must I pay in order to receive eternal life? The lawyer doesn't have any interest in actually being a good person, okay? He, he is thinking like a lawyer, and he is asking this question from the perspective of a lawyer, okay? And he's asking, what must I do, what must I pay in order to receive eternal life? Jesus, knowing who this man was, and Jesus knew how to respond to him, okay? Jesus didn't respond to the lawyer's question with an answer, okay? Rather, in true and clever, proper rabbi form, Jesus responds to this lawyer's question with another question, right? 
And Jesus asks him, uh, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Or how do you interpret it? Okay, what is written in the law? Like a true expert of the law, okay, the lawyer replies perfectly. All right, and he answered, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Perfect answer, right? Because this totally encapsulates the entire Old Testament in two rather uh, relatively simple sentences. But more importantly, this shows that this lawyer has actually been following along in Jesus's ministry and he's been paying attention to Jesus because in another occurrence, a, a scribe or a teacher of the law asks Jesus the same question, right? What's the most important command, right? And Jesus responds in the same way, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So the lawyers really telling Jesus the very same answer that Jesus gave to someone else, right? And so this lawyer is very clever and he's very smart. And it could have, asked, it could have stopped there, right? And, this is, and so this is why Jesus replied very plainly, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But the lawyer, he loved to argue, right? He loved to argue, and I don't know if you know anyone who's like this, all right? Uh, he loved debating and he wanted to keep going, right? So he asks another question. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? You notice the lawyer didn't ask, how shall I love or what is love? Okay, he doesn't ask the question of love, okay? He asks, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? He's asking a question that he thinks he already knows the answer to, okay? The neighbor for him, okay, as a Jewish lawyer, right? The neighbor for him is a fellow Jew. The neighbor for him is someone who looks like him, who acts like him, and who be behaves like him. The neighbor is someone who is just like himself. And I think this has been the biggest problem in America for centuries. We treat only others who are like us, like our neighbors, right? Now, we can't choose who our neighbors are, right? We can't control and, and dictate who lives next to us or who lives near us but we can choose our neighborhood, right? We can choose the people that we decide to spend time with and hang out with and make friends with, right? But so we have a kind of a limited understanding of this word, neighbor, okay? We have a very limited understanding of this word. The word neighbor uh, is a conjugation of an old English word, which is nigh, okay? And I don't know if you remember like like those old fantasy books, or maybe you watch old fantasy movies, or like kind of like historical dramas where they say things like, the end is nigh, right? And that's actually what, it just means near, okay? Neighbor is anyone who is near you. It, it's not limited to your living situation, all right? A neighbor is anyone who is near you. The people of God are called to show goodness to anyone we encounter anyone who is near us, anyone we share space with. And that certainly is the case with anyone who lives in your city. Okay? 
that homeless person that you might pass by every day on the way to work, that might be um, that black coworker that you, you're not really friends with, okay? It's that person who lives like down the street from you. The neighbor is anyone who is near you, anyone whom you encounter, right? And Jesus doesn't say, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love everyone, okay? Because that's actually like impossible. How do you love everyone? But you can love your neighbor who is the person who is near you, okay? You can love your neighbor who is the person who is near you. And so when the lawyer asked Jesus this question, like, who is my neighbor? Uh, again, Jesus doesn't just give him like a pat answer, okay? He responds to his question now with a parable or a story. And this is the story of the Good Samaritan, okay? And Jesus didn't give it this title, the Good Samaritan, because if he said the Good Samaritan in the beginning, it would actually give it away. It's kind of a spoiler, right? And so he gives this very realistic, believable, and contextual story. Uh, and, and it's very believable and realistic because of the setting that it's in, okay? And Jesus is actually using real places, all right? Like Jerusalem and Jericho and this road that connects the city of Jerusalem to Jericho, right? But most importantly, it's realistic and believable because of the characters, because of the characters involved, all right? And the first character that we encounter is the victim, all right? The victim. The victim is most likely a Jewish man since he was going down from Jerusalem and to the city of Jericho, which are both predominantly Jewish populated cities, all right? And it, it's likely that in the first century um, that this man went to Jerusalem for a Jewish holiday, like a major Jewish holiday like Passover, okay? Because it's not an easy journey, all right? Because Jerusalem was located on a plateau, and at the time, there was only one main road up to Jerusalem, which was 3,000 feet above sea level, all right? And the, the road from Jericho to Jerusalem was about 17 miles, okay? So it's not an easy journey, all right? And so he was coming down from Jerusalem and into Jericho, all right? And heading towards Jericho. And on his road down, he was encountered by a gang of thugs, by robbers, who beat him up and uh, took everything that he had, even the very clothes on his back. Okay, and he was left there on the side of the road, almost dead, nearly dead. Now, he's probably been there for quite some time, okay? And after a while, we come across another character who is a priest. He is a Jewish priest. Now, the priest today would kind of be like someone like me, a pastor of a church, right? And these are the people that are supposed to help those in need. But the priest clearly sees him, and he walks on the other side of the road. Then some time later, uh, we come across another character who's a Levite, okay? And a Levite in the first century, they were uh, a group of Jews who were held with the most esteem, okay? They were the most respected group among the Jews in the first century, okay? These would kind of be like the, 
community leaders, all right? Uh, they would be like the council people, okay? They would be like the mayor or something like that, or they would be like some sort of leader in their community, all right? And the Levite saw this victim, this injured man, and again, he just ignored him and, and walked on. The priest and the Levite did not want to get involved. They looked the other way and they remained silent. Most likely, um, one of two things happened in the heart and mind of the priest or the Levite. They saw him and they thought that he was dead, or they saw him and they didn't care enough to do something. They ignored him. But are either of those legitimate reasons not to help someone in need? No, absolutely not. For the priest, if he thought that the man was dead, he was prohibited from touching his body because of Jewish law. The Jewish law at the time uh, made, prohibited a priest from touching a dead body because it would make him ceremonially unclean, all right? Now, the priest was functioning in a way that his system trained him to function, all right? The priest was functioning in a way that the system trained him to, all right? But if religion prevents you from loving your neighbor, then it's no longer a religion of faith, but rather a religion of legalism. If religion prevents you from loving your neighbor, then it's no longer a religion of faith, it's a religion of legalism. Then after the priest and the Levite pass through, we come across the main character of today's passage, which is the Samaritan. Now, the Samaritans were despised by Jews in the first century, okay? Uh, they were not Jewish, okay? In fact, they, if you go way back into Samaritan history, they had a little bit of Jewish blood in their, uh, in their genes, in their DNA, right? But um, they lived in this area called Samaria for so long, and they married outside of their race, and so, uh, and, and so on and so forth. And so the Jews hated Samaritans. And likewise, Samaritans hated the Jews. And so if the Jewish lawyer whom Jesus is telling the story to uh, is listening to the story, right? And then uh, he hears that a Samaritan came around and uh, saw this injured man. He would probably think that the Samaritan was the villain or something in the story, right? That the Samaritan was probably one of the robbers who beat him up earlier. But in fact, it's the Samaritan who comes across the injured man, right? And he has pity on him. He has pity on him, right? He has compassion for him. He has compassion for him. And the word for compassion in the, uh, in, in our language, right? It comes to us from a, a, a conjugation of two Latin words, confasio, which means to suffer with, right? And this is the first example that we see from the Samaritan that makes him a neighbor of justice. Is that justice requires sacrifice. Justice requires sacrifice. This Samaritan, uh, he took pity on him. Okay, he had compassion for him, right? Which means that uh, he actually 
made sacrifices to help this man out. And when he first saw him, okay, one of the first things that he did was he took whatever he had with him, and he happened to have oil and wine, which was very common back then in the first century uh, to have those things on you, especially for travelers, right? And he pours wine and oil uh, on him, okay? Uh, uh, the wine to help uh, as uh, antibiotic, right? And oil to help soothe his pain, right? And then he places the injured man uh, on, his, on his animal, on his donkey, okay? Which means whatever gear that he had on the donkey, he probably had to carry it himself, right? Uh, back to the city, right? And then uh, he takes this man to the inn and he pays his own money at the inn or, or the motel, okay, in the first century uh, to help pay for this man's stay, all right? Now, you might naturally think it was only two days because he pays like two denarii, but one day's stay in an inn uh, in the first century is about one twelfth of a denarii, and so two denarii would actually pay for many, many days for this injured man to stay there, which makes sense because he was beaten senseless, right? And, and then he, he tells the innkeeper, like, I will pay you more if uh, he, he needs a longer stay, right? And so he also plans to follow up on this guy and to take care of him even after like days and days and days of him staying at the inn. And so he makes sacrifices. He makes a lot of sacrifices. And the fact that he is a Samaritan helping out a Jew who probably hates him, right? That's probably the biggest sacrifice that he makes. Overcoming that fear, okay? And overcoming that racial tension. If we want to experience change in America, we all need to make sacrifices. Everyone needs to pay a price because it can't just be black Americans who are paying the price. It can't just be black Americans who are making sacrifices because they have been making sacrifices for centuries, right? Most of which uh, against their own will, right? We all need to make sacrifices in order for justice to be realized. You know, the fact that uh, the name of this story that Jesus is telling the Jewish lawyer um, is called Good Samaritan, it's kind of an oxymoron, okay? And this is what a, a, a professor from my old alma mater, Fuller Seminary, um, his name is Dwight Radcliffe, okay? This is what he said, okay? That it's kind of an oxymoron because Jews hated Samaritans, right? And they just saw them as like the worst people. It's almost like saying, calling the story like good Adolf or good Stalin, okay? And so this Samaritan had to overcome so much, so many barriers in order to help this injured man out in order to actually carry out justice. And justice, it's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. It's supposed to be difficult because it's been centuries of injustice that existed prior to 2020, right? And it goes all the way back to Cape Coast Castle in Ghana, right? Even it, it goes all the way back to Africa hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And the other thing that this Samaritan man teaches us about justice is that Justice is holistic. 
What I love about this man, the Samaritan, is that the Samaritan takes care of this, the entire person, the whole person, right? And he is not satisfied until he is able to fully restore this man back to health. The Samaritan could have seen this injured man and just like placed a couple coins by his side, which would have been far more. It would have been far more than what the priest or the Levite did, right? But instead, he provides him medical care, right? And he provides him with transportation and he provides him with shelter, right? It, he provides him with shelter. And when we look at, when we look at the situation in America today, right? Um, obviously, most police departments need better accountability. They might have to do better background checks on all their police officers, right? And I, I love police officers. I, I think most police officers are great and they're upstanding citizens and they're, most of them are really trying to do their best to protect and serve uh, all of us. Uh, but they could do a better job of doing some psych evals, right? Or, or background checks, right? Which is a lot of work, right? But it can't stop there, right? In order for true justice to be realized in America, we need a better education system for children of inner city kids, right? We need uh, affordable housing for underprivileged people. We need better medical care for those who, who need it, right? Adequate medical care. Justice has to restore the entire person, right? Justice has to restore the whole person, not just one part. Right? If you just fix one part, then eventually everything is, is still lacking. And that is not real justice. That is not true justice. I came across this article recently, um, uh, which I found very, very interesting. Okay? It was about uh, performative allyship. <laughs> performative allyship. It's this idea that um, people of privilege, right, non-marginalized people just go to social media and are very vocal on social media, but that's about all they do, right? Um, and this article uh, written by Holiday Phillips uh, describes what genuine allyship is and what performative allyship is. Okay, and this is what she said. As a black woman, instead of feeling inspired by this act of solidarity, which is you know, going on social media. I found myself feeling angry and afraid. Looking through my feed, I wanted to say to my white friends, you're here now, but where are you the other 364 days of the year when anti-racism wasn't trending? A real ally is someone from a non-marginalized group who uses their privilege to advocate for marginalized group. They transfer the benefits of the privilege to those who lack it. Performative allyship, on the other hand, is when someone from that same non-marginalized group professes support and solidarity with a marginalized group in a way that either isn't helpful or that actively harms that group. Performative allyship usually involves the ally receiving some kind of reward on social media. It's that virtual pat on the back for being a good person or on the right side. That's not justice. Performative allyship 
is not justice. Okay? We need to make sacrifices, and it has to be holistic. We have to restore the whole system. Okay? Black Americans have been dealing and putting up with a broken system for far too long. Okay? And we need to fix the entire system. Okay? We need to reform the entire system, not just the police departments. Right? Not just the police departments. And most importantly, most importantly, justice begins with me. Justice begins with me. And this is what I love about the Samaritan so much, is that he takes ownership. He takes ownership of the situation. He sees the injured man, and he doesn't wait for anyone else. He treats him right away, right? And he puts him on his donkey, and he you know, takes him to the inn, and he takes care of him right away. I mentioned earlier that the priest and the Levite probably didn't take care of this man for maybe uh, they thought that he was dead or um, uh, they saw him and they just ignored him, right? But the other reason why they didn't help him that I didn't mention earlier is that they probably, they might have thought, like, uh, someone else can do it. Somebody else will take care of it. How many of us have thought that same situation? When we come across someone in need, right? When we see someone uh, who, who looks hungry, right? Who, who, who is in need, and we just ignore that person. How, how many times have we thought to ourselves, somebody else will do it? But here's the thing. If everyone in America thought that way, nobody would do it, right? Nobody would do it. And you might think to yourself, like, who am I, right? Who, who am I? I'm nobody. What, what possible difference can I make? But this man, this Samaritan in this story, okay, he wasn't a person of power or influence or wealth. The priest and the Levite, they were people of power, influence, and wealth. But the Samaritan was not, okay? And we know that he was a blue-collar worker because, uh, for one, he didn't own a horse. He owned a donkey, all right? He owned a donkey, which was very much a blue-collar animal in the first century. And secondly, he paid with a form of currency called denarii. Denarii was a very common uh, pay for a blue-collar worker, right? Uh, the really wealthy people would carry like silver coins or something like that. But denarii was very common pay for a blue-collar worker, right? And when we think about the people who made the biggest impact in the world, especially for human rights, right? Uh, and in relatively recent history, okay, a lot of them came from very little to practically no means. Uh, Nelson Mandela, right? Nelson Mandela, a former president of South Africa, uh, he was orphaned when he was nine years old and adopted by a, a new parents when he was nine. Martin Luther King was the middle child of a local Baptist preacher, right? And uh, Mother Teresa, she was a virtually unknown Albanian nun who lived and served the people of Calcutta, India, India for decades, for decades, right? And they were people who you know, they weren't famous or anything like that, okay? And they weren't rich, and they didn't really come from uh, a, a lot of 
uh, power, but it was really these no-name people who decided to do something about justice, and they took justice into their own hands. Justice has to begin with each and every one of us. Now, I have to confess that I've struggled with this a lot, probably my entire life. Okay, as an Asian American, um, as a Korean American, I was taught to um, just study hard, uh, keep my head down and be quiet and don't look for trouble and trouble won't find you, right? And so uh, if I would be at school and I would see a fight break out, right? I would just ignore it. I would just go the other way, right? Or um, if I see like people getting into trouble, like I would just try to go the other way, right? Or Previously, if I would see a protest down, going down the street in my neighborhood, I, I wouldn't want to participate. But now I'm realizing that in order for, and I think a lot of people in America are realizing this now, right? That's why these protests are getting so big and that's why it's so, uh, people are just realizing it's so important for everyone to be involved. Because justice has to begin with me. We can't keep blaming our government leaders, okay? Although God knows that uh, there needs to be a lot of change, right? We can't just blame and point fingers at others, right? We can't just blame a broken system. But all of that, and yes, all of that needs to take place, right? But it has to begin with me. It has to begin with me. There's this verse that I like to like repeat to myself, um, this Bible verse that I like to repeat to myself that kind of helps calm me down, that says, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Black Americans have been living in fear in America for centuries, for centuries, because the church has not adequately loved them. The church has not adequately loved them. Sure, we're cordial, we're polite, right? But we really haven't done enough of this, okay? We really haven't done enough of this. We haven't made enough sacrifices, okay? We haven't tried to restore the whole system. And we haven't taken ownership as individuals to carry out justice and be practitioners of justice we haven't right and black americans have been living in fear for far too long because we haven't shown genuine love but why should we do this right especially if you're not black american right why should we do this it's because this is what how god created us Okay, and I'm reminded of this like every day for the past couple weeks when I see these protests because one of the signs that I see uh, very, very often is a sign that says no justice, no peace, right? No justice, no peace. This isn't just limited to society, okay? While it, it is certainly true that it, we're not going to experience peace in our society if there's no justice, right? But this is also true, or especially true, for us as individuals. If we do not carry out and exercise and practice ju justice on a regular basis, if we don't hate what is evil and love what is good, and if we don't 
stand up for those who are oppressed and care for those who are ignored and neglected and love those who are despised, right? If we don't do those things, we will have no peace in our souls. This is how God created us, right? And we, we might want to pretend like everything's happy and, and everything's fine, but it's not. It's not. America is not in the right place. And they desperately need to experience the love of God. And the main way that that can happen is through God's people. It's through the church. This is my prayer for all of us today, is that we would make those sacrifices that's required for justice to be realized. right? That we would seek to restore the entire broken system. And that we would take ownership of justice as individuals. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would wake us up. Lord, wake us up from our slumber. Wake us up from our complacency. Wake us up from our laziness, God. We have been far too comfortable for far too long. Lord, we all need to make sacrifices. Lord, we all need to take ownership of realizing the justice that you desire for us, Lord. It's been so long that we've dealt with racism and hatred and divisions and now it's being realized, Lord. It's rearing its ugly head. We saw it beginning a couple months ago with COVID-19, with Black Americans and Latin Americans being particularly impacted by this pandemic. And now we see it even more with the abuse and oppression that's been happening. And it, it, it's, it goes way back, Lord, and it's been in America for far too long. And this is in many ways like a season of great awakening. And we ask your Holy Spirit to compel and penetrate the hearts of every single American, Lord. And I'm not the type of person to only care for what's happening in America, but Lord, we are realizing that America is not great. America is not the great country that it claims to be. Lord, we desperately need your love. We desperately need your mercy. And Lord, may it begin with me. May it begin with all of us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.